1: everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Iva Glisic, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dejan Djokic about his new book, A Concise History of Serbia, was published um, earlier this year by Cambridge University Press. Uh, now, Dan Djokic is professor of modern and contemporary history and founding director of the Center for the Study of the Balkans at Goldsmith College, University um, London, of London, um, and since 2020, he um, has also been a guest professor in Southeastern European history at the Humboldt University of Berlin. Now, in June of this year, um, Dan is moving to Ireland. He will be joining the National University of Ireland, Maynooth, as professor of history. Uh, now, Dan's research brings together three main uh, strands of historical inquiry, uh, the Yugoslav War, uh, the global and cultural history of the Cold War, and the history of Southeastern Europe since the Middle Ages. So, three big chunks of, of history. Now, Dan, welcome to the show.
0: Uh, thank you, Eva, for this kind introduction, and thank you for, for um, expressing an interest in my work and in my, my new book.
1: Dan, I'm really excited to talk about your book today, uh, but I wonder if we can begin, um, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself first.
0: Yeah, uh, well, you you pretty much summed it up very nicely. I, I have very little to add. Perhaps I, um, it, what might be of interest is that I'm originally uh, a modernist by training. I'm a historian of the 20th century Europe with a focus on Yugoslavia. So I'm not really uh, even originally a historian of Serbia. Um, so, so during the course of researching and writing this book, I kind of had to to study earlier periods, including early modern and medieval history. So, so this one of these trends that you mentioned is actually a recent one, but I intend to continue studying this. So, in Ireland, at, at Maynooth, where I, I shall be moving uh, later on uh, this summer, I shall be offering a module. Uh, on, on southeastern Europe since the middle age in the Middle Ages and the early modern period so I continue to study this period but but maybe it's interesting or important to know that I approached a uh, history of Serbia as a historian of 20th century Yugoslavia
1: yes uh, it's interesting the, the pathways that our research kind of can take uh, the course um, look I'm um... Today, we'll talk about a concise history of Serbia, which just for our listeners are aware, is a a 600, almost 600 page volume. So that's as concise as it it gets. (laughs) Um, And really, with this work, you cover a full span of Serbia's history from the 6th century Slav migration through until the present day. Um, How did you approach this project um, and, and writing such a history? And maybe you can tell us a bit about the methods and sources that you used in the process.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. So, so you're right. This is, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the longest uh, book in the Concise Histories series. This is the book has been published as part of a Cambridge University Press series, Concise Histories, which which includes titles on 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 Germany, Italy, Bosnia. Recently, also Albania. Um, France and, and so on and um, uh, Greece. Um, many historians many authors in this series actually uh, focus on modern period but I decided uh, um, at some point relatively early on to to cover earlier periods as well and thanks to, my, to the understanding of my editor at Cambridge I was able to kind of extend the original word limit uh, so the book is significantly longer than I had initially planned it to be. Um, but you may you may you may approach it as a, as a kind of de facto two volume concise history a concise st- history of pre modern Serbia and a concise history of modern Serbia. Um, uh, it's true. I, I start with uh, the sixth century when, uh, in fact, we 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 say that the Slavs we 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 know that the Slavs uh, together with Avars emigrated from somewhere beyond the Carpathian Mountains into southeastern Europe. Um, And this was a process which lasted over a century or perhaps around a century. And from what we know, at some point during the later stages of this migration of the peoples, uh, Serbs and Croats uh, uh, migrated to the Balkans. This was most probably in the early 7th century, but we don't know for certain. And now... um, uh, this, you're right, this was, I mean, how, how did I approach it? Uh, it? It was maybe the main challenge, really, initially, uh, how to structure the book and what would be the scope. So so once i decided to start from the beginning or from the earliest known beginnings, uh, this was at the time of the migrant crisis. So we're talking about 2015, 16, when I was beginning to write this book, 2015, actually. Um, um and I thought it would be neat to begin with uh, with the uh, uh, migrations of the peoples of Slavs and others to to the Balkans and to Central Europe, and end with the migrant. Uh, crisis, or sort of, uh, bring the book to towards the, the present day. So this, and I actually very early on decided that I, even though this book has to be chronological, uh, because otherwise it would be maybe too confusing. I also wanted to focus on, on to identify themes, or perhaps these themes identified during my research. So, so the title of the chapters reveal uh, some of the key themes, such as migrations. Migrations is the title of the first chapter. But this this is the one a phenomenon that that occurs later on as well. Migrations is a very important theme in the Serbian history. Also, empire the relationship between the Serbs and, and, and empires that surrounded them or empires that they built or tried to build, um, and so on. Um, so so these were some of the early early challenges, early early uh, kind of dilemmas that I had. Um, another. Um, and so, so so, I actually, as I said, I had to really study. I initially probably thought I would write a 19th and 20th century history of modern Serbia, but we already have something like that. And I wanted to do something slightly different. Also, because I talked to colleagues, I presented very early um, kind of uh, thoughts and ideas about this project at several history departments in the UK and in Europe. And and in, in several colleagues, early modernists, in fact, told me that they would really... Uh, find books in this series much more helpful if they would they would be a little bit more on the pre-modern period. As I said, most books in the series tend to focus on, on the modern period. So I thought actually that this this book should probably also address uh, colleagues who work on earlier periods and students as well. And this kind of, who, who are the target audience? Uh, who are the audiences? I mean, my, my publisher, of course, wanted a book that would be... Uh, readable and accessible to non-specialist audiences, to people who travel to Serbia, maybe businessmen, diplomats, journalists, students, undergraduate students. Uh, but I also wanted it to, to actually contribute in some way to, to, meaningfully to debates among uh, experts on the specialists in the field. Very few have actually written on history of the Serbia. We have a lot of works on Serbia, but it tends to be on contemporary Serbia, not even on, on 19th century or early 20th century. Uh, periods, um, And I also wanted to engage with other Europeanists mainly, perhaps Ottomanists, because Serbia is kind of, you know, everybody seems to, to agree that Serbia played the main role in, in, let's say, 20th century developments, 1914 and so on. But actually, nobody seems to work on Serbia and Serbia is out of, uh, you know, if you're a Europeanist and you work on Serbia, you have to justify why is that European history. If you work on Germany or Austro-Hungary, you don't have to justify is European history, or if you work on France. So, and this is of course a common problem to, uh, uh, that historians of the Balkans face, not not just of Serbia, uh, or perhaps of Eastern Europe. So, so these were some of the. key uh, And another another challenge was, of course, how to write a history of Serbia uh, during such a long period when Serbia did not exist through much of this period. Uh, one way to address this is to to focus on these themes that that recur and that somehow hold the narrative together, I think. Um, and, and I think the writing about this pre-modern period when there was no Serbia also enabled me to move beyond uh, Purely political history and the history of institutions, but to look at people and cultures, and also groups that are traditionally are not included in these grand narratives. I mean, women. I mean, uh, political dissidents in the twentieth century, but also ethnic and religious minorities: uh, Jews, Roma, Albanians, Muslims, Vlachs. They all feature in my book. You know, in uh, perhaps not they're not centrally, uh, they're not part of the central story, which which still focuses on the Serbs and on. Serbia, but nevertheless, they feature much more than in in other works, and I, I hope that this this uh, you know I hope that that readers will will note note and appreciate this. Um, and I think um, what you also asked me about methodology. Uh, uh, You know, another thing that was on my mind that I'm writing a national history in an age of uh, transnational and global histories. And uh, I myself in my other work have actually moved beyond national history. And this was kind of going back to that. And at first I did not necessarily want to write this history, but I'm glad I did it. And in fact... um, well, first of all, in in the book, as I think the readers will see, I, I I understand Serbia not necessarily just as a nation state, but also as a space that emerged in a borderland, in a trans-imperial region, in which uh, you know goods and ideas and peoples moved despite you know imperial borders uh, between, let's say, the Habsburgs and the Ottomans. Or previously between the Byzantine Empire and various South Slav uh, entities, and Hungary further in the north. Uh, not to mention the 20th century uh, uh, divisions, ideological divisions. So I kind of understand Serbia as, as something that is not just a state, but also it's an idea, and 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 Serbs as a as a borderland people. In, incidentally, borderland is is a title of of my chapter on on the early modern period as well. So it's another theme. And and I think, uh, having said that, also I think we have to acknowledge that the nation state remains the the dominant form of political organization in contemporary world. So 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 writing a national history is not entirely meaningless. Uh, And I think that that this this uh, even as histor even though as historians we want to move beyond, we still have to kind of think. Of the nation-state as a dominant form of political organization. This became obvious during the migrant crisis and also during the COVID-19 when the state kind of reasserted its control over the borders and over the citizens and non-citizens. Paradoxically, as a result of uh, these were two global uh, crises, the pandemic and the the so-called migrant crisis, but nevertheless the nation-state kind of Reasserted its position, so so it wasn't necessarily, you know, something that, um, you know. So so I was persuaded, I guess, that this is a meaningful project. And very finally, to, uh, in answering this first question, uh, I think it's I've already kind of hinted, but perhaps it's worth uh, clarifying. The book was conceived and researched and written during the 1914-1918 the centenary celebrations or, or commemorations, during the migrant crisis of 2015-2016, and of course during the COVID pandemic. So I think even though I try not to be you know, uh, a presentist, uh, I try to write history, not to write history backwards, but it is inevitable that we all are in, influenced by, by, the, by, the, by the present in which we write about the past. Uh, so I think that's important to to keep in mind that the, the, the you know my thinking about the past has been has changed probably during this period as a result of of the environment in which I wrote this book. Mm.
1: Uh, readers will will recognize that this is not just an accessible um, history of of Serbia but also very dynamic and I think you are. Um, Outline those different strains that you try to keep together throughout this book quite quite uh, beautifully um the two questions that frame this entire discussion um you you have as uh, is um, like where is serbia and when is serbia and even though that sound like a, two very simple questions you do show that dynamism through those two questions it's it's quite a tricky uh, um answer to, to to put together um I was wondering about this earliest period of Serbia and Serbian history that um, you you opened with. Um, this is not something that is, um, you know, uh, easily accessible, or that knowledge is not really out there for for historians of modern Serbia, especially majority of which focuses on kind of contemporary or nineteenth century. Uh, so, what do we know about this earliest um, period of Serbian history?
0: Uh, yeah, thank you for, for 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 your kind words and thank you for this excellent question. We actually know very little and this was maybe some, a surprise to me. Uh, as a modernist, I, of course, I studied and I, I read about earlier stuff, but I always thought that some things are kind of, you know, we always say the Serbs and the Croats settled in the Balkans in the late 6th or probably early 7th century. But in fact, we don't have any sources to prove that. This is just an educated guess. It's very likely that this is what happened, but they're not... Serbs and Croats are not mentioned or Balkan Serbs and Balkan Croats are not mentioned in historical sources until the ninth century <laughs> so um, and so this is one of the problems so the, about this earlier uh, uh, history we actually know about we know about them from from uh, medieval sources that that were written uh, two or three centuries later after these events so for instance the main the main source which historians still use and study and debate medievalists. Uh, is is a book by a, a Byzantine emperor Constantine the Seventh, Porphyrogenitus, who wrote a book, uh, De Administrando Imperio, or on governing the empire. Today, this probably would be described as some sort of a policy paper or policy recommendation to his successor and 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 future emperors how to deal with his uh, neighboring peoples, including the Serbs, and so so it's. We don't even know if he was the author, but most likely he was the author. Uh, and the chapter on the Serbs uh, includes the story of their origin and their arrival to the Balkans. Um, and this was written in the 10th century by an emperor of an empire which at that point had lost control of much of the central Balkans where the Serbs at that point had some sort of... Uh, uh, of, of, of uh, uh, of polity, I wouldn't call it necessarily statehood, but uh, had some sort of autonomous uh, control over this territory. And you, you may notice, or the readers will notice, that in the book I use the term Central Balkans. I think it, it's, it's to me, it's more correct than the, the Western Balkans. I hate this is this contemporary uh, term, and it's totally to me, it's actually ridiculous. Quite frankly, is there then Eastern Balkans? The Eastern Balkans is now. In the EU, so therefore it's not the Balkans. So it's so in the Central Balkans there was there was one or perhaps more than one South Slav polity that was associated with the Serbs at that time, uh, and so we 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 you know so the, the anyway I will not go into details, but the point is that that this this document is uh, is was written in the 10th century and it describes events of the 6th and 7th century and. It's almost certainly based on, on uh, Byzantine documents, which have since disappeared or have been destroyed, most probably in the, the Latin sacking of, of Constantinople in, in 1204. Uh, it's almost certainly also based on on uh, what the Serbs at the time thought was their origin, or if not the Serbs, then those who knew their language and, and communicated with them. And so the idea is that the Serbs came from some unknown location in in. Central or Eastern Europe, uh, from White Serbia and so on. This is really very much a speculation. So we know very little. I mean, things improve later on with uh, the late uh, 12th, early 13th century, with the, the emergence of of the of the uh, state of Raska under the Nemanjic family under the Nemanjic dynasty, which we also you we often co- refer to as Serbian. Uh, but actually, its rulers rarely called it Serbia. They called it Serb lands, and these Serb lands included Raška and also various other territories on on the coast, in the littoral, and Zeta and and, and Húm and so on. Um, so, so to 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 really uh, uh, cut a long answer short, we know little. A lot of it is based on speculations, but at the same time, there is some excellent research done by medievalists. Uh, uh, and so we, we have, you know, we can speculate with some degree of certainty about this pre-13th century uh, period, Um not this is not to say that post 13th century period is very clear either we still have actually not not enough sources to be uh, uh, certain about uh, you know some important questions and another problem and i will finish the answer to this question is that a lot of our knowledge or what we we, we think we know or understand about the medieval medieval serbian medieval balkans more broadly uh, is really grounded in the 19th century romantic historiography when suddenly, um, suddenly Suddenly, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the historians who had, uh, by the standards of the time, were quite, quite, you know, excellent, but really from today's point of view were liberal nationalists. <laughs> and so suddenly, so, so Professor Sima Cirković, late Serbian medievalist, he has a beautiful sentence in, in one of his works in which, in which he said that, uh, that all of these, um, or many of these Serbian notables or nobles uh, uh, from the 13th and 14th century, became Serbs in the 19th century. We actually, in some cases, we don't know what is their background, whether they're really Serb. I mean, they were Serb political in the sense that they were Serb feudal lords uh, loyal to the Serbian king or emperor, but they may have been of Albanian or Vlach or Greek origin. We don't know exactly. Uh, but in the 19th century, they all became Serbs. Uh, and so I think one of the challenges was also to... And it was not easy because I had to rely on these predecessors uh, um, who, who, you know, in also 20th century uh, historians. But, but I also had to be very careful about these interpretations. And in some cases, I had to go to, to primary sources, uh, even about these earlier periods which I had never previously researched properly.
1: Yeah, that, that would be an exciting um, experience for a modern historian to to engage with, with um, that source base. Um, as you were talking, I was just thinking about throughout your book, the, there's a very strong emphasis about all these different influences that are coming to into a plate throughout the course of, of Serbian history. And one thing that is kind of constant is that Serbia or Serbs always p- perceive themselves as a as an entity position at the crossroad, right, between East and West, um, for better or worse, right? Um, so can you tell us a bit about, you know, how did Serbia's medieval rulers or, or those who identified, right, with Serbian polity, how did they navigate this position between East and West, between those big empires? And- mm-hmm
0: well one uh, one of the dangers of, of a kind of uh, of writing this uh, history of, of the Middle Ages is that you know if so it is often said that history is a foreign country uh, but I would say that medieval history is a foreign con- is another continent to a no- modernist it's not only a foreign kind of neighboring country but it's another continent so it's very difficult to understand really um, The thinking and so so this concept of East and West is very modern. Uh, They did not really think in those terms. To the extent that they thought about this, they they probably saw themselves as living in the West in the sense that they lived to the west of Constantinople, which was at the center of the civilized world at the time. and so, so, so th- this this would not be necessarily out of some desire to escape from the east and to say we are in the west, but because east actually had positive connotations, but simply because geographically they they were to the west of Constantinople. Um, there is also a myth which has been uh, attributed to Saint Sava, the founder of the Serbian uh, Church, the first Archbishop of the Serbian Church in the uh, early. Um, 13th century, that he apparently said that Serbia is kind of both East and West and neither East nor west and But this is not true. This was actually attributed to him by a 20th century writer. He never said this, and he would not have thought in those terms, right? However... Uh, so but keeping this in mind that we are of course uh, you know we are in we are inevitably uh, re, uh, you know thinking about the past through the prism of the present but thinking about keeping this in mind it is also fair to say that it's especially 13th century serbian kingdom was a highly complex kingdom toward in some ways i'm not saying that this was necessarily completely the case, but at some level, it was a dual Orthodox Catholic kingdom. Uh, Some of its kings, in fact, the founder of the Nemanij dynasty, uh, he was baptized uh, according to Roman Catholic rites. Uh, It is often said, including in historiography, that later on he was baptized for the second time according to Eastern Orthodox rites. This is highly unlikely, historians now believe. Uh, it's important to remember that in the 13th century, the even though this was post 1054 schism between the Eastern and Western Christianity, that these boundaries were not so clearly defined. So this Serbian kingdom included both Roman Catholic dio- dioceses uh, and also Eastern Orthodox. Uh, Eparchies and um, and and some of these kings actually were Catholics. Um, uh, Also, the first the first king Stefan Nemanja's son Stefan Nemanich, the first crowned, he received the crown from the Pope in twelve seventeen. Only two years later, his younger brother Rastko or Saint Sava, whom I mentioned already. Uh, founded the Serbian Orthodox Church as an autocephalous Serbian. Uh, it was at the time an archbishopric, not patriarchate. It, it became a patriarchate later in the 14th century. So, so in between 1217, 1219. So, so within two years, Serbia becomes a kingdom thanks to a crown that arrives. From, from the Pope and and also uh, becomes an uh, you know official religion if you wish becomes Eastern Orthodoxy. Now there, there, there are reasons, of course, for this uh, political reasons. This was at the time that I already mentioned in 1204, Byzant- uh, Constantinople was sacked by Crusaders. Uh, and so this was the, the so-called Latin period of the Latin Constantinople, which actually Byzantium is in exile, in, and there's several rival Byzantine states in Nicaea and Epirus and Thessaly and so on. So Byz- Byzantine is in decline, and this enables the rise of Serbia. And Serbia, of course, uses the situation, and, and it's politically opportune to receive, you know, also for the, for for the Pope to grant a royal crown to this, you know, Slav ruler who might, you know. And so, so this is there. There are various reasons for this. There are various factors involved. Also, economically, Serbia actually trades mainly uh, with uh, with the Italian city states and with Dubrovnik. And Dubrovnik merchants, uh, there is a presence of Dubrovnik. Um, Traders and merchants in throughout the the medieval period in Serbia, and later on also in, in the Ottoman Empire, in Ottoman Serbia, if you want. And so we mentioned previously that sources are scarce, and we don't have many good sources. But thanks to the Dubrovnik uh, uh, archives, we actually know. Quite a bit about this this 13th and 14th century Serbia, thanks to the sources that are still preserved in Dubrovnik. Uh, so economically, Serbia kind of was trading more with, with this kind of, if you want to use a modern term with the West, but really with Dalmatia and Italy, Venice, Venice and Dubrovnik, essentially, and, and some other Italian city-states. And very finally. And this is maybe most interesting, is uh, that the architecture of Serbian monasteries and churches is quite original. It combines, uh, uh, you know, Western and Eastern. It's Eastern Orthodoxy, but the buildings are kind of, uh, very, very you know, they were built by Dalmatian and, and Venetian builders. So they resemble, you know, Gothic and uh, and, and kind of Italian uh, uh, churches of that period, rather than Byzantine. This changes later on in the in the kind of 14th century. There is a greater uh, uh, in in church architecture. You can sh- see a shift towards Byzantine style. But even then, this is not complete. So actually, many of these Serbian medieval monasteries don't look uh, or and churches don't don't look typically or stereotypically Byzantine and Eastern Orthodoxotos but rather and uh, rather more uh, Western if you want or, or Dalmatian Italian so so I think this church architecture maybe um, uh, is is a good uh, example of this symbiosis if you want between uh, Catholicism and, and and Eastern Orthodoxy and maybe East and West, to use a modern term.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That, that's quite interesting. I mean, the art history of that period really shows that, that well, that that synthesis both in the architecture and um, in the production of, of um, art and artifacts that were included in those uh, uh, incredible edifices of that period. Um, so apart from having to deal with the question, where is Serbia, and you know that also where is West and East is another set of questions that we need to think about um, in approaching this history. Uh, Now, your book moves chronologically to the Ottoman era um, and the Ottoman occupation of the Balkans, which is a major part, of course, of Serbian history, but also Serbian mythology and myth-making. Can you tell us a bit about the position of Serbia and the Serbs during the Ottoman era? It's it's a long period, but what were some of the things that you think um, a reader should be aware of thinking about this uh, dynamic? Yeah,
0: Yeah, thank you. First, I don't use the term occupation. (laughs) Uh, I don't use Ottoman occupation. Uh, Maybe Ottoman era is better. And um, as you say, this was a long period. I mean, first of all, the Ottoman conquest of medieval Serbia was very long. It lasted nearly a century uh, in fact, if if you consider the two kind of turning points, uh, the, the the Battle of Maritsa of 1371, in which Serbian King Vukasin lost. Uh, Marica is a river in present-day Bulgarian parts, flows through Greece, also. I think uh, this was kind of considered a really a major major military defeat, which opened the door uh, for the Ottomans, you know, for their uh, for their kind of conquest of the central Balkans, and the fall of Smederevo, the last Serbian city-state in 1459. So between 1371 and 1459, you have 88 years. This is longer than Yugoslavia existed. So this was kind of the period of the Ottoman conquest. Uh, This is how long it took the Ottomans to conquer this medieval Serbia. But this is not necessarily because they were trying all this time. This is a very complex period. Uh, We, of course, have a central event at Kosovo, at the Field of Kosovo in 1389, the Battle of Kosovo, which I cover in the book, I don't necessarily say anything new. Uh, again, we don't know much about this battle. We know that both sides lost, suffered heavy losses, and both sides lost their leaders at Kosovo. Prince Lazar of, of the Serb, of the Serb coalition uh, or Serb-led coalition, and Sultan Murad of the Ottoman uh, state, uh, they were both killed at the battle. The Ottomans did not immediately uh, kind of conquer this space, partly because Murad's successors, Bayezid and Yakub fought a sort of a dynastic conflict who would become the new Sultan, and also because the Ottomans had to deal with, with uh, you know, um, Rebellions in Anatolia and so on, so they couldn't. So basically, they eventually return and eventually conquer this space, not just Serbia but much of the Balkans. But this is a, this was a complex process. Actually, this this was also through vassalage, through political alliances, not just through military conquest. Um, and initially, Serbia Serbia kind of disappears in 4059 when the despotate falls with the fall of Smederevo, the last Serbian capital. <laughs> but uh, church survives. I mean, traditionally, we uh, his, historians have already said that the Serbian patriarchate at that time uh, also is abolished. But it's not really. It's it probably kind of de facto ceases to exist in the southern parts of. What was Serbia in, in present day Macedonia, Kosovo, and so on? But in these northern parts, in what is present day Central Serbia, uh, this church continues to exist during the Despotate, and really probably also for uh, for a bit longer after the fall of Smederevo. And then, of course, the Patriarchate is is um, uh, re-established in the 16th century, during the Grand Viziership of Sokolu Mehmed Pasha, or Mehmed Pasha Sokolovic, or Bayo Sokolovic, who was one of the uh, Muslim converts uh, from present-day Herzegovina, um, and he 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 was uh, you know uh, this was in the in the 16th century. One historian called it. Uh, the era of a Serb-Turkish romance. Uh, I think Professor Dragor did used this because there was a very good relationship between. Uh, uh, well, many many of the of the pashas, not just Sokolu Mehmed Pasha, were South Slav converts, um, and then it later changes, the, and then then there is a series of pashas who are of Albanian origin, of ethnic Albanian origin. But the point is that Balkan peoples were not just subjects of the Ottoman Empire, but they also were active agents mainly those who converted. In the book, I also mention example of several poets and writers who, who played a major role in the Ottoman cultural history at the time who were Serb converts or Balkan converts. Uh, they came from Užice, from Belgrade, and so on. Um, so, so I guess what I'm saying is that the position. So there is no more Serbia. Serbia disappears. There's this political uh, kind of cons- entity called Serbia, or Serb lands disappears after 1459, um, and there is not nothing called Serbia within the Ottoman uh, structure. Uh, there is, for instance, a Bosnian Eliot. Um, but there is no Serbian. And the, the answer for the for why this was the case is actually simple. It's not because of some anti-Serbian bias, but it's simply because the Serbian state was much bigger and it basically disintegrated in already prior to the Ottoman arrival into a number of feudal uh, uh, kind of realms and fiefdoms. And so the Ottomans, for instance, they called... Um, <laughs> Uh, what is today Kosovo, more or less, in parts of northern Macedonia, they called the Vuk's land, uh, the land of Vuk Brankovic, or the former. Uh, 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 lord of this territory, and so on, and so so. For instance, the uh, uh, what what was the despotate of Serbia, this area, what is today central Serbia, was was the Sanjak of Smederevo. Uh, once once Belgrade uh, is conquered in 1521, uh, the Pasha or the the Vizier of Smederevo moves to Belgrade, but it continues to be officially known as the Sanjak of Smederevo. But colloquially, it becomes known. As uh, the Belgrade Pashalik, but it's it, strictly speaking, it was the Sanjak of Smedre. So there is no uh, no no territorial ter- 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 organization called Serbia anymore, except in the in the imagination of Western travelers. I mentioned that in 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 the book also. Uh, Serbs as Eastern Orthodox, they they become part of uh, of the Orthodox Millet. Millet was uh, some sort of ethno-confessional uh, uh, or. Um, uh, Organized the, the Ottoman Empire, for instance, was not organized necessarily according to these territorial autonomies, but ethno-confessional groups were were were. Uh, placed in these millet. So there was a Jewish millet and there was a Christian millet and within this Christian millet there was a Greek Armenian Serb and so on. The Muslims were not part of the millet system. They were above. And Roma, who appear later, were also not part of the millet system because they were both uh, Muslim and Christian Roma and they belong. They were another group. So it was some kind of, sort of not territorial, but let's say ethno-religious autonomy. <laughs> Uh, Early on, we also know, actually, recent historiography shows that in in the early decades of the Ottoman rule, there were also Christian uh, timars, uh, sorry, sipahis. Sipahis were landowners who were... Who who owned who were able to to raise tax on the timar, the land that they owned, and so so we we tend to think that all these uh, landowners were Muslim, uh, and eventually this becomes the case. But early on, they're actually Christian, including Serb landowners. So so this kind of break with the past was not instant. There is some sort of some sort of uh, uh, continuity as well, and and you have to remember that the borders changed frequently. You know, uh, many Serbs. Um, migrated so so i think uh, uh, finally, in, in in answering this question, maybe it's important to remember that that one of the main legacies of this Ottoman period is uh, is a migration, both social and physical. So this theme of migration, occurred. we of course all know about the Great Migration of the of the of the 18th century. Uh, sorry, 17th, late 17th century. There was also another migration in the 18th century further north in what is today Vojvodina and southern Hungary. Many Serbs, but also other Orthodox even Albanians, Greeks, Bulgarians emigrated further north. Um, So this is the physical migration about which we know quite a lot, or at least which we we think about when we talk about migration. But social migrations were also important. First of all, I mentioned conversion to Islam. This is also a migration of sorts. And also um, previously agricultural and settled agricultural population becomes a nomadic kind of shepherd Population. So this is another another important migration. I would say social, and and this is also this is significant also because previously the Vlachs occupied this position of nom, semi nomadic shepherds, uh, but now the boundaries between the the kind of agricultural Slavs who are settled and the the shep, shepherd semi nomadic Vlachs blur. This actually already happened prior to the Ottoman arrival, but. it it kind of accelerated with it. So there there is a lot of, um, uh, um, if you want mixing of people's as well as unmixing to use Roger Brubaker's, well-known uh, uh, term, and so really, finally, so so really, we this is a very long period. So to answer your question, what was the position of the Serbs? is not easy. In early decades, it was different from how it was later on. Uh, Ottoman Empire expands as far as Vienna and then shrinks back to Belgrade, and this, of course, affects the Serbs very much. Uh, and I think a lot of these negative stereotypes. And to be sure, the Ottoman Empire was in many ways more tolerant than some Western empires towards. Uh, minority groups. The dominant groups were the uh, group, were the Muslims of course was the Muslim group <laughs> but nevertheless it was still an oppressive state so so non-Muslims were second class uh, citizens to use another modern term uh, but it becomes more oppressive in the late 18th, early 19th century and this is actually, this is a time when there was a collapse of the imperial order so there was a kind of various rebel pariah groups of janissaries and uh, kirjalis or Kirjalie in Serbo-Croat, who kind of really don't recognize anymore the imperial rule and they they increase taxes and terrorize the local Christian, but sometimes Muslim population. And So I think a lot of these negative stereotypes, they talk about the Ottoman yoke of 500 years, uh, are maybe. Uh, to do with this later period uh, when there was real oppression. Um, What is today, Serbia was under the Ottoman control for different... Again, we talk about 500 years of Ottoman rule, but this is not always the case. Some parts were under the Ottoman rule for 350 years, Vojvodina even less so,
1: yeah, no, so I think you, your book very clearly shows that it's not that this theme of migration in, in various different meaning of, of the word, but also this border shifting, this constantly contracting and expanding uh, empire, which certainly impacted um, the population there in various different ways. Um, you, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that with this book, you tried to uh, pull back in a sense from that traditional political history um, and indeed, throughout the the uh, your discussion of uh, Serbian history, you draw in different intellectual and cultural movements that um, shape this uh, space as well. Um, can you tell us about, you know, for example, the Enlightenment or the Romanticism? Those huge European and global really movements. How do they um, How did they reflect um, in in Serbia and among? Uh, uh, that population that spoke what you say, that kind of mysterious Serbo-Croatian language, it's hard to. So, what what is that language is another theme, right, of your of your book? So, you can tell us a little bit about that period, that intellectual and cultural um, stream of your book.
0: Yes, in answering the previous question, uh, I kind of hinted in a way that these later events, let's say 18th century events, are perhaps arguably uh, more important. That the, the late Ottoman rule is more important. To an understanding of of modern Serbia, and this was also because eighteenth century we had three major wars between the Austrian and Ottoman empires that were fought in the central Balkans and, and parts of Central, southern Central Europe, if you want, southern Hungary. In other words, affected those territories that were populated by Serbs or those populations that identified as Serbs or perhaps were identified as Serbs. Um, and also there was a Russo-Ottoman war, uh, which ended with the Treaty of Kucukainarji of 1774, Following which, hugely important. Following which, uh, Russians are officially protectors of the Orthodox populations of the Ottoman Empire, including Greeks, but uh, but of course Serbs also. So, uh, but we should not only focus on wars. Uh, this was a period, as I already said earlier on, when these these uh, seemingly, you know, we had. Uh, st- uh, Hostile empires and very strict, uh, strictly policed and uh, imperial borders. There were actually also hundreds of quarantines designed to prevent the spread of, of infectious diseases. Uh, but nevertheless, these were actually rather porous borders. <laughs> um, this was this was uh, so there was a military border which which kind of ran across from let's say present day Knin in Croatia all the way to Timisvara in Romania. Uh, and this Croatian and Bosnian Krajina, or military border was populated by Serb migrants, and this was. But this border also, actually, there were there, there were also many Catholics in there. There was a communication with serbo-croat speaking Muslims who were also employed sometimes as bordermen. And there were also Serbs who, who were who were border guards for the Ottoman Empire and so on. So you have this military society in which there is there is quite a lot of uh, communication and exchange of goods and ideas and so on. But, and then you also have intellectuals. Uh, um, so 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 the role of the Habsburg Serbs, educated Habsburg. So those Serb refugees who in the sixteenth and seventeenth century, seventeenth century emigrated initially. Like all the refugees, they were, of course, uh, uh, discriminated against. They were not always allowed to settle in towns and cities and so on. But eventually they do actually integrate quite well. They speak languages, they travel, they they, they begin to, to, under, to, to kind of... Um, <laughs> Uh, and they, they begin to propagate the ideas of, of uh, nation of the modern nation. Uh, speakers of the Serbo-Croat language, of the Serbian language, that, regardless of their religion, therefore are members of the same nation. This story is relatively well known, but I, I kind of try to, I try to emphasize in my book. I tried to place it in the context of Europe at the time, <laughs> rather than to approach it from the perspective of the 1990s wars, in which many authors, including some serious scholars, argued that this, this was the origin of, let's say, greater Serbian uh, uh, ideology, when everybody who spoke Serbian was considered a Serb, and obviously this is to do with greater Serbian nationalism. T- to be sure, there was that, but I think we need to understand. These ideas in the context of their own time, um, and I mean particularly Vuk Karadzic, who was a great Serb uh, language reformer and cultural historian, who by the way was not a Habsburg Serb. He was uh, a refugee from from Serbia following the collapse of the first uprising, and he was first Serbian uprising, and he was very much sponsored and encouraged to do his work by a Slovenian uh, linguist <laughs> and scholar Jernej Kopitar, and later on by various German. Uh, German Romantic uh, uh, writers and philosophers and in, and intellectuals such as Goethe and Brothers Grimm and so on, and and his predecessor Dositej which was was um, was another important figure. I I mentioned this. I, I there is a whole section in the book about this, but as I said, I try to emphasize the the contemporary context and to understand these. Uh, and I think I guess the point I make in the book is is not an original point, but it's something that is often neglected especially in the western historiography that that uh, enlightenment enlightenment uh, did not actually um, it, it was something that did not spread beyond Western and Central Europe. This is not true. And for instance, Professor Pashalis Kitromilidis, a, a Greek historian, he has written about the Enlightenment uh, among the Orthodox peoples. And I think sir, this, is, this is very much the case uh, with the Serbs, mainly because of, the, of this educated Habsburg uh, Serbs. Uh, so these ideas are, are very important, and I would say they're just as important for the emergence of the modern Serbian state as the Ottoman misrule, which provoked a peasant uprising, which eventually becomes a national revolution in the early 19th century.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think there's a little bit of movement in scholarship to, to uh, in terms of thinking about these uh, intellectual um, uh, movements of, of this period and moving away from the Western Central perspective to see really how this, and they, these ideas traveled. Like right? There was, as you say, no borders that could stop um, these ideas from uh, being... I
0: mean, I mean, one shouldn't forget Russian influence also. Of course, yeah, At this yeah, yeah. time, uh, uh, Serbian language is also very much influenced by Rus, uh, uh, Rusko-Slovenski, Rus, Rus, uh, Russo-Slovonik, or Russian Church... <laughs> Is influential uh, as well. So, but but actually, Russian influences also uh, could be seen as as uh, enlightening. Uh, In the book, I I give an example or two examples rather. uh, When at the beginning of the Serbian uprising, Serbs uh, of eighteen oh four, the Serbs first approach Austria for protection against the Ottomans, and Austria says. No, they approach Napoleon. No, they send a delegation to Tsarist Russia and they're received by uh, the foreign minister, Russian foreign minister, uh, who happened to be a Polish uh, a nobleman, Prince Adam Czartoryski, who basically tells them uh, Serbia is far, the Ottomans are our, Ottoman Turkey is our ally you should go back and negotiate, but make sure that you have a, some sort of a government <laughs> so that actually others know who represents the Serbs. So this idea of a government, in fact, comes from Russia. And this is the reason why the first Serbian government uh, was uh, had a Russian name, Soviet, uh, uh, naroda uh, something like that. Pravitelstvijsci Soviet is not a Serb word, actually. It's a Russian, so this comes from Russia. And later there was a Russian... Envoy or ambassador to, to Cara Giorgi's uh, revolutionaries called Konstantin Rodofinikin, who was, in fact, a, a Russian-Greek of Greek origin, who also tried to introduce, and who tried to kind of uh, counter the culture of heavy drinking <laughs> among Serbs. <And laughs> that is so a wonderful episode yes. yeah, in, in your book in the about book his... I as well. So, yeah, yeah, so basically, don't forget Russia. Well. Uh, and Russia is not always this kind of, uh, you know, it's also kind of a Western... Uh, influence of sorts at times
1: yeah yeah and again in in your book i think you show really well the the perceptions that we have of Serbian enemies and allies that that's an, another thing where the borders shift in in various different ways and perceptions change as well uh, you move your your discussion into this a period really of, of uh, perpetual conflict right of post-conflict society uh, uh, Balkan was the first world war second uh, world war and uh, Serbia suffers extraordinary human and material loss in this period uh, how did these events shape Serbia's political trajectory in the 20th mm. century
0: well I, I think uh, in in a book I somewhere I think I write that Serbia may be seen as a perpetually Post-war society. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's
1: a good uh, yeah, uh, phrase uh, yeah, to use. I mean,
0: it's, it's true these losses were huge. Serbia suffered enormously. Uh, the figures were in, inflated. Uh, we don't yet know exact figures for the First World War, but certainly the figures that circulated during the Paris Peace Conference uh, that were, that, were uh, that the Yugoslav delegation there, or the delegation of the Kingdom of Serbs, Grads and Slovenes. Uh, provided that they were inflated. Um, Similarly, figures of of Serb and Yugoslav uh, losses in the Second World War were inflated. We now know that it was not 1.7 million, but but roughly 1 million of all Yugoslavs who died in the Second World War. And we know that roughly one half of that figure, so 500,000, were Serb losses and some something similar, I think we can talk about the losses in the first world war. The Balkan Wars not so many, maybe, maybe thirty to forty thousand, but still, nevertheless, these were huge losses. But I think I would argue that not just the number of losses, but the nature. Uh, in which this violence was uh, was carried out, there were anti-Serb pogroms and and certainly war crimes, uh, huge massacres of Serb civilians by Austro-Hungarian troops at the beginning of the First World War. Something that was not properly discussed later on, perhaps because some of the violence was committed by South Slav. Uh, Paramilitaries, na- na- mainly Croat and Bosnian Muslim. There was also a Serb-Serb conflict in the First World War. Many Serbs fought loyally for the Habsburg in the Habsburg army against uh, the Serbian army. Uh, and this kind of Serb-Serb conflict is, of course, even more uh, uh, strong in the Second World War. So I think we have to remember when we talk about this period of conflict, that this is not just the conflict between Serbs and non-Serbs, but there are also Serb civil wars, if you want. The legacies uh, of which are still felt to this day, Serbs are still divided. I mean, not all Serbs, but these debates, you know, about the Chetniks and the partisans uh, are still there. I, I, but I think sometimes there is a tendency, even among some scholars, to maybe... Um, uh, Uh, to to maybe uh, single out Serbia as almost uniquely (laughs) unable to come to terms with this past. Actually, Legacy of the civil wars in other countries are still with us today in Greece, Spain, even in the in the United States, as we saw during the, pres, uh, the, the, the Trump presidency. You know, and the civil U.S. Civil War took place much, you know, in the mid mid nineteenth century. Uh, I'm simplifying somewhat, but I just want you know this is one of the aims of my book is to put Serbia in a wider context to kind of fight this idea that Serbia is somehow always different. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, you
1: do know that this is this the uh, this story about the special a path a special way that, that that is a bit of a myth as well that Serbia in that respect is no different to some other societies that were
0: yeah um... well my argument is is largely based on Vejko Vujacic's excellent paper working paper on Serbian exceptionalism thesis and I I think I may add a little bit to that but yes true I think I reject that but at the same time there are some some developments uh, uh, that are specific to Serbia at least in the South within the Southeast European or East European European context, um, but but true, yes. This and so I think another point to make when, when, when you when you mention when you asked me about this uh, legacy of these wars and this kind of I think Serbia emerges from from both world wars as both a victor and a kind of martyr. There are both narratives. The narrative of victory is very strong after the First World War, but also the narrative of martyrhood. Serbia sacrificed so much and Serbia suffered so much. Uh, for the sake of other South Slavs, for the sake of Yugoslavia. Uh, and similarly, in the Second World War, there is this, of course, the Serbs were subject to genocidal uh, violence in the independent state of Croatia. Um, uh, they were victims of, of, uh, of also of German reprisals uh, uh, and so on. So so they say the Serbs were also victims. But this, at the same time, there is a very strong... Uh, victor's narrative. And I think it it builds on the 19th century to a degree. Uh, uh, I I use in my book, I borrow from Professor John Connolly's uh, recent study of of Eastern Europe, from peoples into nations, in which he talks about Polish and Serb nationalisms as resurrectionary nationalism, uh, nationalisms. So, so in the Serbian case, this is true. This idea of, of uh, resistance to empires, There's, you know, a medieval uh, battle of Kosovo, then various other, you know, early nineteenth-century uprising against the Ottomans, and so on. And and in the Second World War, uh, uh, both the Partisans and the Chetniks, the Serb Partisans and the Serb Chetniks you <laughs> Built on the tradition uh, of the of the 19th century anti-Ottoman uprisings, also young Bosnians, young Bosnians who were responsible for the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, they were actually rehabilitated in Tito's Yugoslavia. They were also see, they were seen as this kind of uh, rebels against an empire. And uh, of course, when this happens, Yugoslavia was in conflict with the Soviet Union, political conflict, and so on. So this idea of Serbia, but then then kind of it it reflects more widely on Yugoslavia after the Second World War and also during the interwar period as this nation that is a victor in wars but also huge sacrifices and this constant resistance against the more powerful enemy uh, yeah, is, is very important. I think that these are some of these legacies, of course, apart from, from very obvious legacies of huge demographic losses <laughs> from which I think Serbia never really fully recovered
1: yeah uh, I think these legacies also come into the section where we talk about more more recent history um, and of course the series of conflicts that followed the dissolution of uh, socialist Yugoslavia in 1991. Um, can you talk about the impact of these conflicts Yes, Soviet society I think today. This
0: is very much part of the same question, I would say. I would not even study... Necess- it's, yeah, I would not necessarily even uh, look at them. Contexts are different. This is this is absolutely true. Um, but I think in some ways, the Second World War returned in the 1990s, certainly in this kind of symbolic language, minus the partisans. As Milo Vangilas noted, the Chetniks and, and the Ustashas were back, but there were no partisans in the 1990s, right? Um, um, no, I think... The this is very similar, except that this was very much a, a, a war among the South Slavs, both first and second world war uh, wars. Actually, there was a, a, a violence and, if you want, civil and brotherly fraternal conflict among the South Slavs and among the Serbs. But this, this, these 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 uh, these wars took place within the broader context of the global conflicts. But the nineteen nineties are different. This is very much a local conflict. Um, and, of course, the legacies of this are uh, uh, felt to this day. Um, you know, Serbs, uh, uh, Serbian society is still to come to terms with, with what happened in the 1990s. Um, Serbs also, again, have this narrative that, that they're kind of maybe now they're losers, they lost all the wars, but they 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 fought against a more powerful enemy, especially the NATO, uh, NATO alliance in 1999. Uh, and I think one of the legacies, again, is, um, Serbs suffered also, again, enormously in terms of only Bosnian Muslims or Bosniaks suffered more in the 1990s in terms of of, of population losses. But also Serbs are emigrating. They continue to emigrate since then since the early 1990s, uh, Serbs have left in large numbers. So Serb, some parts of Serbia are now depopulated. So in the book, I also, towards the end, I wonder if Serbia missed an opportunity during the 12-15 migrant crisis to encourage some of the migrants to remain in Serbia and to stay in some of the almost depopulated villages. Uh, so these are some of the legacies, of course. Um, And I think we now, of course, uh, have a very complex situation. Uh, We don't know where Serbia is today, necessarily, again, even though we should know uh, because of the disputed uh, status of Kosovo. Kosovo, of course, uh, is no longer under Belgrade's control. It is at least de facto uh, independent, but this independent is not recognized by Serbia and it's not recognized by five EU member states as well as Russia, China, and uh, a number of other countries. Um, I guess another legacy is a complex relationship with Montenegro, Mm -hmm. uh, especially as regards the identity of Montenegrins. Are they Serbs or are they related to the Serbs? What about the Serbian Orthodox Church in Montenegro? Um, Relations with with Bosnia and Herzegovina are highly complex. There is almost half of Bosnia is an entity called Republika Srpska or Serb Republic. Um, Almost half of Montenegrins... Either declare a Serbs or declare their mother tongue to be Serbian, or belong more than half belong to the Serbian Orthodox Church. So there is this very complex uh, uh, relationship with its immediate neighbors. But these are legacies also not just of the wars. I would again, I would also say these are the legacies of also co- coexistence together within Yugoslavia, and also of these earlier population movements during the Ottoman uh, Ottoman periods, which we discussed.
1: Yeah, so there's a there's a there's a long continuity, I guess, yes, of some so, of these so, questions that you ask, and yes, it right. so really shows throughout the, this. Uh, I mentioned uh,
0: early on, uh, that problem of perhaps I didn't mention, but I write early on in the book about the problem of continuity. There is no real continuity between medieval uh, Serbian states and the modern Serbian states, but there are other. Uh, uh, uh levels of continuity with the pre-modern periods uh, not just the serbian orthodox church but also in terms of these population movements and migrations and so i think i think i try to find a balance between rejecting the continuity completely and and insisting on a continuity that you know somehow the ottoman occupation as some would say was just a temp, you know just a break between the Serbian statehood was renewed i would say Serbian statehood was not renewed, it was an entirely new state, very, very different. But there there are some historical continuities as well, which I, I hope that I identify in the book.
1: Yeah. I mean, you already flagged there a little bit um, of what I want to ask you next, and that's you know what are some of the common misperceptions and even myths about Serbia and, and the Serbs that you hope well, is. is there, the there are
0: many correct? of these, I don't think we have time to discuss many that exist within Serbia and among Serbs, but also outside. Uh, And so there there are actually quite a few. I mean, in Serbia itself, um, uh, but let's say that one that is maybe common, but for different reasons, is this special path in history that's on the back. Those who are, let's say, to put it crudely pro-Serbian, they would say Serbs were always kind of Uh, This resistance and always uh, never occupied anybody. They were always on the right side, and so on. And there, there is also another narrative that says the Serbs are always. Um, the bad guys, the aggressors, always anti modernity. And this, these narratives exist actually within Serbia, which I think is great. It's good that uh, there is some pluralism. I, I kind of reject both theses as, as too, too simplistic and try to find a middle ground somewhere. Um, but, but I think also outside of, 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 of Serbia, and perhaps even among, you know, talking to my colleagues. Your other Europeanists, from whom I have learned quite a lot, actually. So this is maybe something I should have said that, that in addition to to reading secondary sources written by historians of Serbia, I have also learned a lot from historians of, of other other countries or other other regions of Europe, Western Europe or Southern Europe. Uh, But again, Serbia is always somewhere, you know, it's not really, even even those who are well-meaning and who want to know more, Serbia doesn't really feature there. It's it's not really European. If If you're a historian of Serbia, you really have to work very hard to, to persuade your colleagues that you you are also a historian of Europe, perhaps that you're also a historian of Eastern and Central Europe. Serbia is not, uh, and the Balkans as a whole, is not really seen as a legitimate subject. So I hope that my book also addresses some of these misperceptions, that actually by studying Serbia, maybe, maybe we can also approach European history more broadly, albeit from an unusual angle, uh,
1: Yeah. Um, we talked a little bit about some of the these uh, myths and misconceptions and surprises. Um, can you maybe share with our listeners some of the kind of the big surprises that you came across or, or little surprises that you came across during your research, whether that's some of the conclusions or sources? Because uh, this is such a long period and so much material. Uh, underpins this study. Yeah, I'm was sure some that some kind of the kind of
0: surprises were because of my uh, lack of knowledge. As I said, I'm a historian of 20th century Yugoslavia, so I really had to study. Even 19th century was a terra incognita for me in many ways, but let alone early modern and let alone med- medieval period. The medieval period is also extremely long. So the early modern, early middle ages, uh, we, we know very little about. And then, of course, the high middle ages, we know a little bit more. Uh, so perhaps... Or, Not perhaps, but definitely some of the surprises were due to my lack of kind of knowledge. But at the same time, I was actually surprised that they seemed to be uh, some kind of perceived wisdoms or knowledge. That, that have been repeated by by, histo- by generations of historians, and nobody seems to question them. So one would be one. This may be a small example, but uh, you know, it's it's often said that Serbian was the language of the Ottoman diplomacy, and that it was spoken at the Ottoman court in the 16th century. And I wanted to find out whether this was really the case. And and of course, to a degree, uh, this language was not Serbian, but it was a South Slav vernacular, and it made se- makes sense because the many of these. Uh, as I already mentioned, were South Slav converts, and and in, for instance, in their dealings with with Brovnik, it made sense that they would speak their own language, uh, or in their dealings with uh, with the peasant militias of Southern Hungary, who were mainly Serb, it made sense for an Ottoman pasha to speak his own la- you know, to speak the common language, right? So. Um, but whether this what so, but was this language really called Serbian? And it took me maybe a week to find to trace the source of this. That and in fact uh, I I came across an, uh, so some Serbian historians have been citing a Croatian historian who wrote in the late nineteenth century in a, in a journal that no longer is published in Zagreb that you know but but in this journal in this article sorry published in eighteen ninety something he says that they spoke Croatian which to me was equally strange. I mean, would I really call it Croatian? And then I managed to trace the original uh, source. And this was a Venetian Dalmatian uh, diplomat and traveler and probably a spy uh, who traveled to Budim, uh, present-day uh, Budapest, and spoke to the pasha and, and noticed that the, the, the court of the local pasha they spoke what he described as Croatian because he was familiar with, with uh, with the Slav language of Dalmatia, I guess, which would be maybe called Croatian, uh, but but it's debatable whether these people actually con- uh, declared uh, you know felt as Croat or called this was probably some Bosnian, Serbian, Bulgarian. Dalmatian, South Slav vernacular, but it took you know I was surprised that nobody, or at least somebody may have done it, but I did not to my knowledge that that nobody traced this and kind of tried to problematize this constant repetition that Serbian was spoken and maybe more importantly this idea that you know even even historians who are quite I would say belong to this group that is quite crit- critical historiography of Serbia within Serbia they would they would approach nineteen 19- century uh, so-called in inverted commas emancipation from the Ottomans uncritically. Um, this is true that this was you know the period of emancipation in the sense that you know Muslims were leaving, uh, Christians were, were kind of adopting these European uh, European values. Uh, there was a great there were the beginnings of feminism and so on and so forth. But they completely failed to 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 note two things. First of all, what about the Muslims who are leaving? Uh, Everybody talks about Serbia in the 19th century, finally becoming a land of immigration instead of emigration, but completely neglect, you know, tens of thousands of local Muslims, some of whom would have been probably Serb converts to Islam, or certainly were Serbo-Croat speaking, who, who were basically kicked out or who had to leave, or some of them chose to leave rather than live as second-class citizens in this newly Christian-dominated society. But nevertheless, I was surprised that this this question is kind of neglected, but also that that similar kind of modernization and Europeanization uh, uh, takes place in Constantinople, in Istanbul, (laughs) in the imperial center. So this is not just, you know... Uh, that Serbia is leaving this Ottoman Empire and enters Europe. But actually, the Ottoman Empire also tries to enter Europe. I'm talking about mid-19th century, 1850s, 1860s. Yeah, So these were some, some examples, but there are many others, I guess. Uh, but I should leave it to the reader. Maybe the readers should be surprised uh, when they read
1: it. Oh, oh, look, I was just going to say I have so many more questions, you know the history of, of um, Jewish presence in, in this in this region comes through your book Women's History, uh, some extremely famous women that come from the region have shaped, you know, modern history of modern art, for example um, the history, the, the story of vampires is also connected to the region, but so is the history of James Bond and the birth of that, that character, so re- readers will find so much more um, and, and uh, which, from whichever angle they approach it, um, such, such a rich text. And then I, 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 uh, I just wanted to thank you for sharing these uh, insights with our audience today. Um, and maybe before we finish, uh, if you could tell us what comes after a project like this? What is the next thing, well, and um, well, what are you working on at the moment
0: from this project? But I have been also working. Uh, uh, I mean, this kind of a little bit like this uh, historical periods and uh, and change of lead of of, of uh, rulers and change of state control over a territory. These projects tend to overlap as well. There is almost rarely a complete break with the previous project. So I've already started a few years ago working on a new project, which would be a microhistory of a kind of. Uh, uh, it would be very auto it will be autobiographical. It's a sort of a collective uh, biography autobiography of the last generation of the Yugoslav peoples army soldiers of whom i was one at the at the beginning of the war in yugoslavia specifically in slovenia so i've been working on that and that has been ongoing and i'm hoping i'm now hoping to complete that project in in, in the immediate uh, future uh, but at the same time i have been kind of uh, working on this book because you know once you you submit your manuscript this is not the end it's almost only the beginning this post production uh, lasted a long time, and now, of course, the book is out. Uh, you know, I'm very grateful that people like you want to talk about the books. So I'm very happy to do that. So I'm kind of, I'm not, I've not put Serbia behind yet, but I need a break from Serbia a little bit to focus on this micro micro history of the collapse of Yugoslavia that comes next. And I have some other ideas which I've also started working on, but maybe I should keep that uh, uh, to myself just yet. <laughs>
1: and thank you again for uh, being a guest on on the podcast and and for sharing these wonderful stories and uh, I wish you really best of luck with your next project and also a a period of rest before you jump into the next thing thank you
0: thanks